Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you. And together, we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today, we are continuing the novella called Candide, a satirical story written by the philosopher Voltaire in 1759. The name Candide means optimism and plays into the satire of the whole story. We started this story last week, and if you haven't listened to that episode, I would recommend starting there. I will be reading from a translation by John Butt. Just a quick disclaimer before I begin. Because of the time in which this story was written, and due to its purposely dramatic nature, there are several terms and phrases used to describe humans from different walks of life that we no longer use or accept because they are demeaning and inhumane. I have left them in this telling to keep it true to the text, but I also didn't want to leave this unaddressed. We cannot change how things were, but we can acknowledge them and learn and grow together. The language that we use and the way we talk to and about other humans matters deeply. If you would like to talk about this, there is an email in the show notes and I would be more than happy to hear from you. Let us be conscious of how we treat one another and make the world a better place for all of us together. Chapter 7. How an old woman took care of Candide, and how he found the lady he loved. To pull himself together was easier said than done. But Candide managed to follow the old woman to a hovel, where she gave him something to eat and drink, and a pot of ointment to rub himself with. She then showed him to a decent bed with a suit of clothes and laid out beside it. Make a good meal, she said, and have something to drink, and get a good night's rest, and may Our Lady of Atoka, St. Anthony of Padua, and St. James of Compostela take care of you. I shall come back in the morning. Astonished as he was with what he had already seen and suffered, Candide was even more surprised at the old woman's kindness. He wanted to kiss her hand, but the old woman stopped him, saying, it is not my hand you should kiss. I will come back tomorrow. In the meanwhile, rub yourself with that ointment, take some food, and have a good night's rest. In spite of his misfortunes, Candide made a hearty meal and slept soundly. The next morning, the old woman brought him his breakfast and examined his back, which she rubbed herself with another ointment. At midday, she brought him his dinner and returned in the evening with his supper. The day after, she did exactly the same. "'Who are you?' Candide kept asking her. "'And what makes you so kind to me? How am I to thank you for what you have done?' But the good old woman would not reply. She returned in the evening, but this time she brought him no supper. "'Come with me,' she said, "'and don't speak a word.' 
She took him by the arm and led him out of the town for about a quarter of a mile till they came to a lonely house which stood on its grounds, surrounded by a moat. The old woman knocked at a side door, which was immediately opened, and led Candide up a private staircase into a richly decorated boudoir. She showed him to a brocaded couch and then left him, shutting the door behind her. Candide could scarcely believe that he was awake. His past life seemed like a nightmare, and the present moment a happy dream. The old woman soon came back, supporting with some difficulty, a veiled and bejeweled lady of majestic build, who trembled as she drew near. "'Pull the veil aside,' said the old woman to Candide. The young man approached and timidly lifted the veil. He had the surprise of his life, for to his astonished gaze it seemed that Lady Cunegonde stood before him. And so, in fact, she did. Candide's strength left him, and he fell at her feet, unable to speak a word. Cunegonde, too, was equally affected and sank onto the couch. The old woman took some rose water and sprinkled it over them. This brought them to their senses, and they began to speak. Broken words came first, then half-uttered questions and answers, followed by sighs and tears and groans. Seeing them well on the way to recovery, the old woman left them to themselves, advising them to make as little noise as possible. "'Can this really be Cunegonde?' cried Candide. "'You are still alive, then, to think that I should find you in Portugal. "'So you weren't ravished or disemboweled, as the learned Pangloss assured me?' "'I was, indeed,' said the lovely Cunegonde. "'But people don't always die of those mishaps.' "'And your father and your mother? Were they killed?' "'This is only too true,' said Cunegonde, with tears in her eyes. "'And your brother? He was killed as well. "'Now tell me why you were in Portugal, and how you knew that I was here, "'and how you managed to have me brought to this house.' "'I will tell you all about it,' replied the lady.' But first you must let me know everything that has happened to you since that innocent kiss you gave me and those kicks you received. Her wish was a law to Candide, and though he felt much abashed, and his feeble voice trembled as he spoke, and though his injured spine still hurt him, he told her everything that had happened to him from the moment of their separation in the most innocent way imaginable. Cunegonde was deeply affected and shed tears at the death of Pangloss and the worthy Anabaptist. When Candide had finished, she told him her story, as follows, and you can well imagine that Candide, who gazed at her the whole time in rapt attention, did not miss a single word. Chapter 8. Cunegonde's Story One night, when I was fast asleep in bed, the Bulgars, by grace of God, arrived at our lovely thunder tent-trunk and slaughtered my parents. They cut my father's throat and my brother's, and made mincemeat of my mother. A great lout of a Bulgar, six foot tall, noticed that I had fainted at the sight of this butchery, and set about ravishing me. 
That was enough to bring me round. I recovered my senses and cried for help, struggling, biting, and scratching as hard as I could. I wanted to tear the fellow's eyes out. You see, I didn't appreciate that what was happening in my father's house was in no way unusual. The brute gave me a wound in my left thigh, and I still bear the scar. Oh, how I should like to see it, exclaimed Candide innocently. You shall, said Cunegonde, but first let me go on with my story. By all means, said Candide. Cunegonde continued. A Bulgar captain came in. He noticed that I was bleeding and that the soldier made no attempt to move. This lack of respect for an officer so enraged the captain that he slew the brute across my body. Then he had my wound dressed and took me to his quarters as a prisoner of war. I used to wash his shirts for him, he hadn't many, and cook his meals. There is no denying he thought me pretty as well as useful, and I admit that he was quite handsome himself. His skin was certainly both white and soft. But apart from that, I can say little for him. He had not much intelligence and little understanding of philosophy. It was quite clear that he had not been brought up by Dr. Pangloss. At the end of three months, he had no money left, and as he had grown tired of me, he sold me to Don Issachar, a Jew with business connections in Holland and Portugal, who had a weakness for women. This Jew was much attached to my person, but he could not get his way with me, for I was more successful in resisting him than the Bulgar soldier. A woman of honor can be ravaged once, but the experience is a tonic for her virtue. To make me more amenable, the Jew brought me to this country house where we are sitting. I used to think, she continued, as she looked round her boudoir, that there was no place so beautiful as Castle Thunder Tentronk, but I see that I was wrong. One day, the Grand Inquisitor noticed me at Mass. He ogled me persistently, and sent a message to say he had something to discuss with me in private. So I was brought to his palace. I told him of my birth, whereupon he showed me how I was degrading myself in belonging to an Israelite. A proposal was then made to Don Issachar that he should surrender me to his eminence. Don Issachar, who is the court banker, and therefore a man of some standing, would not hear of the proposition until the Inquisitor threatened him with an auto de fe. This forced the Jew's hand, but he made a bargain by which this house and I should belong to both of them in common, to the Jew on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Sabbath days, and to the Inquisitor the other days of the week. This agreement has now lasted for six months. There has been some quarreling, as they cannot decide whether Saturday night belongs to the old law or to the new. For my part, I have resisted both of them so far, and I think that is why they love me still. In course of time, his eminence made up his mind to prevent the disaster of another earthquake, and to intimidate Don Issachar by celebrating an auto de fe, to which he did me the honor of inviting me. I had an excellent seat, and delicious refreshments were served to the ladies between mass and the execution. I confess I was horrified at seeing these two Jews burned, and that honest Basque who had married his godmother. But imagine my surprise, my fright and distress at seeing a figure that looked like Pangloss, dressed in the sacrificial cassock and paper mitre. I rubbed my eyes and watched attentively till I saw him hanged. Then I fainted. 
but scarcely had I recovered my senses when my eyes lighted on you, standing there stark naked. You can fancy what horror and consternation, what grief and despair I felt. Your skin, I assure you, is much whiter than my bulgar captain's. It has a much more delicate bloom. The sight roused feelings which overwhelmed and consumed me. I screamed and wanted to shout, Stop, you barbarians! But my voice failed me, and indeed my cries would have been useless. When you had been thoroughly flogged, I said to myself, What can have brought my adorable Candide and our wise Pangloss to Lisbon, one to receive a hundred lashes, and the other to be hanged at the orders of that same cardinal inquisitor who is so devoted to me? I am afraid Pangloss cruelly deceived me when he told me that all is for the best in this world. You can well imagine how distracted I was. One moment I was almost beside myself with frenzy, the next I was at death's door from very faintness. And all the time my mind kept recurring to my parents' butchery and my brother's slaughter, then to the insolence of that brutal bulgar soldier and the wound he gave me, then to my slavery as a kitchen maid and, and to my bulgar captain, and that wretched Don Issachar, and the hateful inquisitor, then back to Dr. Pangloss's execution, and the magnificent anthem and counterpoint performed while you were being flogged. But above all, my mind dwelt on the kiss you gave me behind the screen that day, when I saw you for the last time. And I praised God for bringing you back to me through so many trials. I ordered my old servant to take care of you and bring you here as soon as she could, and she has faithfully carried out my wishes. It gives me inexpressible pleasure to see you again, and to listen to you, and talk to you. But you must be ravenous. I'm feeling famished myself. So let's have supper. They sat down to table together, and after supper reclined on the beautiful couch already mentioned. There they were when Don Issachar, one of the masters of the house, arrived. It being the Sabbath day, he had come to enjoy his rights and unfold the tenderness of his love. Chapter 9 Relating Further Adventures of Cunegonde, Candide, the Grand Inquisitor, and the Jew Issachar was the most excitable Hebrew that had been seen in Israel since the Babylonian captivity. So you are not satisfied with the Inquisitor, you Galilean bitch, he shouted. But this rogue must be given a share as well. With these words, he drew a long dagger, which he always carried, and hurled himself at Candide without pausing to think whether his opponent was armed. It so happened that the old woman had given our worthy Westphalian not only a suit of clothes, but a beautiful sword, which he now drew, and, gentle though his manners were, laid the Israelite out on the floor, dead as a doornail, at the feet of the lovely Cunegonde. "'Holy virgin!' she exclaimed. "'What will happen to us now? "'A man killed in my house. "'If the police come, we are done for.' "'If Pangloss had not been hanged,' said Candide, "'he would have given us good advice in this emergency, "'for he was a great philosopher. "'Failing him, let's consult the old woman.' "'She was a person of remarkable discretion, "'and was just starting to give her opinion "'when another secret door opened.' It was one hour after midnight, and therefore Sunday morning, a day which belonged to the Cardinal Inquisitor. 
he entered and saw before him the man whom he had flogged, with a sword in his hand, a dead body lying on the floor, Cunegonde frightened out of her wits, and the old woman offering advice. Candide made up his mind in an instant. His reasoning was as follows. If this holy man calls for help, he will assuredly have me burnt, and Cunegonde, too, in all probability. I have been mercilessly whipped at his orders. Besides, he is my rival. I've got into the way of killing people. There's no time to hesitate. His reflections were clear and rapid, and without giving the Inquisitor time to recover from his surprise, he ran him through and laid him beside the Israelite. Here's another scrape, cried Cunegonde. There will be no mercy. We are excommunicated for certain. Our last hour has come. A gentle creature like you to kill a Jew and a priest in the space of two minutes? What could you have been thinking about? Dearest lady, replied Candide, a jealous man in love doesn't know what he is doing, especially if he has been whipped by the Inquisition. The old woman then resumed her advice and said, there are three thoroughbreds in the stable, with saddles and bridles. The gallant Candide must get them ready. You, madame, have some moidores and diamonds. We must make haste and rip to Cadiz, although I can hardly keep my seat with only one buttock. The weather could not be finer, and we shall enjoy travelling in the cool of the night. Candide immediately saddled the three horses, and Cunegonde, the old woman, and he covered thirty miles without baiting. They had scarcely made their escape when the police arrived at the house. The cardinal was buried in a beautiful church, and Issachar was thrown out on the dunghill. In the meanwhile, Candide, Cunegonde, and the old woman had reached the little town of Avicenna in the Marinian hills, where we find them next engaged in conversation in an inn. Chapter 10 describing the distressing circumstances in which Candide, Cunigonde, and the old woman reached Cadiz, and how they set sail for the New World. "'Who could have robbed me of my moidores and diamonds?' cried Cunigonde, bursting into tears. "'What are we to live on? Whatever shall we do? Where shall I find more inquisitors and Jews to replace them?' I strongly suspect that reverend friar who slept at the same inn with us yesterday at Badajoz, said the old woman, wringing her hands. I don't like jumping to a hasty conclusion, but I remember that he entered our room twice and left the inn long before we did. <sighs> our excellent Pangloss often proved to me, said Candide with a sigh, that worldly goods are common to all men and that everyone has an equal right to them. That being so, the friar certainly ought to have left us enough to finish our journey. Dearest Cunegonde, have you nothing left? Not a farthing, she replied. Then what are we to do? said Candide. We must sell one of the horses, said the old woman. I will ride behind my lady, though I can hardly keep my seat with only one buttock, and we will reach Cadiz somehow. A Benedictine prior, who was staying at the same inn, bought the horse from them for a few pesetas, and Candide, Cunegonde, and the old woman reached Cadiz at last by way of Lucina, Chias, and, Le and Lebrija. At Cadiz, a fleet was being victualled and some troops assembled for enforcing the claims of reason upon the Jesuits of Paraguay, 
who were accused of inciting one of their tribes near the town of St. Sacrament to rebel against the kings of Spain and Portugal. Having served with the Bulgars, Candide was able to show his proficiency in Bulgar drill in front of the general of this little force, and made so favorable an impression by his grace and swiftness, his bearing, nimbleness, and valor, that he was appointed to command a company of infantry. Behold him now, a captain, embarking with Lady Cunegonde, the old woman, two manservants, and the two horses which had belonged to the Grand Inquisitor of Portugal. During the voyage, they argued incessantly about poor Pangloss's philosophy. We are going to a different world, said Candide, and I expect it is the one where all goes well, for I must admit that regrettable things happen in this world of ours, moral and physical acts that one cannot approve of. I love you with all my heart, said Cunegonde, but I still shudder at the thought of what I have seen and experienced. Everything will turn out right, replied Candide. Why, even the sea round this new world is better than our European seas. It is calmer, and the winds are less variable. It is undoubtedly the new world that is the best of all possible universes. God grant it may be, said Cunegonde. But I have been so terribly unfortunate in all my affairs that I have lost almost all hope. The way you both complain, exclaimed the old woman. You haven't had misfortunes like mine to bear, I assure you. Cunegonde started to titter with laughter, for it was amusing of the good woman to pretend to be more unfortunate than she. My dear good Abigail, she said with an emphatic shake of her head. Unless you have been ravaged by two bulgars, had two stabs in your belly, and two of your country houses demolished, unless you have had two mothers and two fathers butchered before your eyes, and beheld two of your lovers flogged at an auto de fe, I don't see how you can rival me, especially as I am a baron's daughter with seventy-two quarterings in my coat of arms, and yet have served as a kitchen maid. Madame, replied the old woman, you know nothing of my birth. And if I were to show you my behind, you wouldn't talk as you do. You would suspend judgment. This speech excited the curiosity of Cunegonde and Candide, and the old woman continued with these words. Chapter 11. The Old Woman's Story. My eyes were not always sore and bloodshot, my nose did not always touch my chin, and I have not always been a servant. I am the daughter of Pope Urban X and the Princess of Palestrina. A little side note, written by the author himself. Notice how exceedingly discreet our author is. There has so far been no pope called Urban X. He hesitates to ascribe a bastard to an actual pope. What discretion! What a tender conscience he shows. Until the age of fourteen, I was brought up in a palace whose very stables were grander than all the mansions of your German barons, and any one of my dresses was worth more than all the magnificence of Westphalia. I daily increased in beauty, grace, and accomplishments, and was surrounded by delights of all kinds. I met with tokens of respect and excited expectations wherever I went. And I was already an object of desire. My breast grew shapely, and what a lovely breast it was. 
white as a lily, and as firmly and elegantly molded as the Venus de Medici's. And when I think of my eyes, and those marvellous eyelids and jet-black brows, I remember how our local poets used to tell me that the flames which burned so brightly in those two pupils of mine outshone the twinkling of the stars. The women who dressed and undressed me fell back in ecstasy as they looked at me before and behind, and there was not a man who did not yearn to change places with them. I was betrothed to a sovereign prince of Massa Carrara, assuredly the very pattern of all princes. He was my equal in beauty, a paragon of grace and charm, sparkling with wit and burning with love. I adored him to distraction, to the point of idolatry. I loved him as one can never love twice. The marriage was to be celebrated with unparalleled pomp and magnificence. It was a continual round of feasting, dancing, and carnival, and the whole of Italy was engaged in writing me sonnets, not one of which was worth reading. The highest point of my happiness was at hand when an old marchioness, who had been my prince's mistress, invited him to drink chocolate with her. He died less than two hours later in horrible convulsions, but that was a mere trifle. My mother was less afflicted than I was by this blow, yet even her despondency was such that she decided to leave this melancholy scene for a while and visit a beautiful estate which she owned near Gaeta. We set sail in a yacht gilded as richly as the altar of St. Peter's at Rome, but had not gone far when a Moorish pirate bore down upon our ship and attacked us. Our soldiers defended themselves like the Pope's guard. They fell on their knees and threw away their arms, begging the pirates for absolution at the point of death. They were immediately stripped stark naked, and so were my mother, our ladies-in-waiting, and I. It is wonderful how quickly these gentlemen can strip people, but what surprised me more was that they put their fingers into a place where we women normally admit nothing but a syringe tube. This seemed to me an unusual custom, but that is how we regard everything new when we first leave our native country. I soon discovered that they wanted to make sure we had not hidden any diamonds there, a practice dating from time immemorial among civilized seafaring nations. I learned that the Maltese Knights of St. John never fail to observe it when they capture any Turks and their ladies, and it is, in fact, an established point of international law which has never been called in question. I need not tell you what a hardship it was for a young princess and her mother to be carried to Morocco as slaves, and you can readily imagine that we had to suffer on board the pirate ship. My mother was still a beautiful woman. And our ladies-in-waiting, even our chambermaids, had more charms than can be found in the whole of Africa. As for me, I was ravishingly lovely, the pattern of beauty and grace. And I was a virgin, but not for long. That flower of maidenhood, which had been reserved for the handsome prince of Massacarara, was torn from me by the pirate captain, an odious negro, who even fancied he was doing me an honor. The princess of Palestrina and I must certainly have been mighty strong to withstand all we had to undergo before reaching Morocco. But that's enough. Such experiences are so common that they are not worth the trouble of describing. Morocco was swimming in blood when we arrived. The fifty sons of the emperor Muley Ismail each had his faction, 
which in effect created 50 civil wars of blacks against blacks, blacks against tawnies, tawnies against tawnies, and mulattoes against mulattoes. It was perpetual massacre throughout the length and breadth of the empire. We had scarcely disembarked when some blacks of a hostile faction turned up to carry off my pirate's booty, of which we were the most precious part, except for the gold and diamonds. I then witnessed a fight such as you would never see in the like of in European climates. Northern races are not sufficiently warm-blooded. Their lust for women does not reach the mania that is so common in Africa. It seems that Europeans have milk in their veins, but it's fire and vitriol that runs in the veins of those who live on Mount Atlas and round about. They fought like the lions, tigers, and serpents of their country to decide who should have us. A moor seized my mother by the right arm and my captain's lieutenant held her by the left. A Moroccan soldier took her by one leg while one of our pirates clung to the other. Almost all our women were immediately disputed in the same fashion by four soldiers apiece. My captain kept me hidden behind him, and with his scimitar slew everyone who confronted him. In the end, I saw my mother and all our Italian ladies torn limb from limb, slashed and massacred by the monsters that fought for them. All were killed, both captors and captives, my companions, the soldiers, the sailors, blacks, whites, and mulattoes, and finally my pirate chief. And I myself lay dying on a heap of corpses. Scenes such as these took place all over that country, as I know full well, and it is three hundred leagues across. Yet they will not miss one of the five daily prayers prescribed by Mohammed. I freed myself with considerable trouble from the pile of bleeding corpses, and managed to crawl to the shade of a large orange tree on the banks of a stream nearby. There I collapsed, exhausted and famished, overcome by fear, horror, and despair, and soon after I fell asleep, if I may so describe what was more like a trance than slumber. I was in this state of weakness and insensibility, hovering between life and death, when I felt myself pressed by something stirring on my body. I opened my eyes and beheld a good-looking man of fair complexion, who sighed as he muttered, O ce siagura de sere senza coglioni. Chapter 12. The Old Woman's Misfortunes Continued Astonished and delighted as I was to hear my native language, I was nonetheless surprised at the words the man uttered. I replied that there were greater misfortunes than what he had complained of, and I had told him briefly the horrors I had experienced before I fell into another swoon. He carried me to a house nearby, where I was given something to eat and put to bed. He waited on me, comforted me, and caressed me, telling me that he had never seen anyone so beautiful, nor had ever so keenly regretted what no one could restore to him. I was born at Naples, he told me, where they castrate two or three thousand children every year. Some of them die. Some acquire a more beautiful voice than any woman has, and others become prime ministers. My operation was a great success, and I became organist to the Princess of Palestrina. To my mother, I exclaimed. Your mother, he cried, with tears starting to his eyes. 
then you must be that young princess I taught till she was six years old, who was promising even then to be as beautiful as you are now. You are quite right, I replied. Four hundred yards from here you will find my mother cut into four pieces and lying under a heap of corpses. I told him all that had happened to me, and he described his adventures as well. He told me how he had been sent to the king of Morocco by a Christian prince to make a treaty with that monarch for the supply of gunpowder, cannons, and warships, to enable him to destroy the trade of other Christian powers. I have completed my mission, said the honest eunuch, and I'm going to leave from Cuta. I will take you back to Italy with me. I was touched by his kindness, and the tears started to my eyes and I thanked him. Instead of taking me to Italy, however, he brought me to Algiers and sold me to the governor of that province. Scarcely had I been sold when the plague, which had spread through Africa, Asia, and Europe, broke out in Algiers with increased fury. You know what earthquakes are like, madam, but have you ever had the plague? Never, replied Cunegonde. If you had, replied the old woman, you would agree that it is much worse than an earthquake. It is very common in Africa, and I caught it. Just imagine the situation of a pope's daughter, fifteen years old, who in the space of three months had suffered poverty and slavery, had been ravished almost every day, seen her mother quartered, endured the horrors of famine and battle, and was then dying of plague in Algiers. I didn't die, however, but my eunuch did, and so did the governor and almost the entire Algerian harem. When the first ravages of this terrible plague had subsided, the governor's slaves were sold. A trader bought me and took me to Tunis. There he sold me to another trader who took me to Tripoli and sold me once more. From Tripoli I was taken to Alexandria, from Alexandria to Smyrna, and from Smyrna to Constantinople. I changed hands at each place, and in the end found myself belonging to a captain of the Sultan's Guard, who soon afterwards was ordered to the defense of Azov against the Russians. This captain, who was a most civil man, took the whole of his harem with him and housed us in a small fortress on the Sea of Azov, where we were guarded by two black eunuchs and twenty soldiers. A vast number of Russians was killed, but they gave us as good as they got. Azov was burnt to the ground, and the inhabitants were slaughtered without regard to age or sex. All that was left was our little fortress, which the enemy decided to starve out. The twenty soldiers who guarded us had sworn never to surrender, but the extremes of hunger to which they were reduced forced them to eat our two eunuchs for fear of breaking their oath. A few days later, they decided to eat the women. We had a Mohammedan priest in our fortress, a most pious and compassionate man. He preached a beautiful sermon to the soldiers, persuading them not to kill us outright. Cut just one buttock off each of these ladies, he said, and that will provide you with a delicious meal. If you find you need more, you can have as much again in a few days' time. Allah will be pleased at such a charitable action, and the siege will be relieved. His eloquence persuaded them and we accordingly suffered this horrible operation. The priest anointed us with the same ointment that is used after children have been circumcised. I assure you we were all at death's door. 
Scarcely had the Turkish soldiers finished the meal we had supplied when the Russians arrived in flat boats. Not one Turk escaped. The Russians paid no attention to the state we were in. But wherever you go, you find French surgeons. One of them, a very clever man, took care of us and cured us, and I shall never forget how he solicited me as soon as my wounds were completely healed. He also said what he could to console us, assuring us that similar things had happened at several sieges and that it was quite in accordance with the laws of warfare. As soon as my companions could walk, we were all sent to Moscow. I was knocked down at a sale to a Russian nobleman, who made me his gardener and whipped me twenty times a day. Two years later, he was broken on the wheel with about thirty other noblemen for some intrigue at court, so I seized the opportunity of escaping and made my way across Russia. For a long time, I was a barmaid at an inn in Riga. From there, I went to Rostock, then to Wismar, then to Leipzig, Kassel, Utrecht, Leiden, The Hague, and Rotterdam. I have grown old, with only half a behind, in misery and shame, but I have never forgotten that I am the daughter of a pope. I have wanted to kill myself a hundred times, but somehow I am still in love with this life. This ridiculous weakness is perhaps one of our most melancholy propensities. For is there anything more stupid than to be eager to go on carrying a burden which one would gladly throw away, to loathe one's very being, and yet to hold it fast, to fondle the snake that devours us until it has eaten our hearts away? In the countries where it has been my fate to wander, and in the inns where I have worked, I have met a vast number of people who detested their existence. But I have met only twelve who have voluntarily put an end to their misery. Three Negroes, four Englishmen, four Swiss, and a German professor called Robeck. I ended by being a servant in the house of Don Issachar the Jew. He made me your waiting woman, dearest lady, and I am now linked to your destiny and more concerned with your adventures than with my own. I should never even have spoken of my misfortunes if you had not provoked me a little, and if it were not the custom to pass the time on board ship by telling stories. So you see, madame, that I am a woman of experience. I know the world. Just to amuse yourself, persuade each passenger to tell you his story, and if you find even one who has not often cursed his life and told himself that he is the most miserable man alive, you can throw me into the sea head first. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. It helps other people find and enjoy the show, too. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. You also may have noticed we have new show music. This piece of music was composed by my dear friend Rachel Robinson, played by the wonderful Andreas Gateman, and audio engineered by the talented Devin Lamont from the band Crash Kick. Our episode album art was drawn by the exquisite Georgia McInnes. We'll be back next week with the next part of this wonderful story. Till next time, friends.